Well, we've been treated to an insult match between two of the great figures of hell in Dante's Inferno, Master Adam, certainly one of the great figures, and Sinon, who gives as good as he gets in their insult invective match that Dante has watched from the sidelines. Virgil's watch too. A long silence from both the pilgrim and his guide. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, and all of that is to explain that we are here at the very, very bottom of the subsets of fraud in the tenth of the evil pouches of the Malabolcha in the eighth circle of hell, and we are finally, at long last, oh my gosh, at long last, we are at the end of the eighth circle We're at Canto 30, lines 130 through Canto 31, line 6. This ending to fraud bleeds over six lines into the next Canto. This is my English language translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can read along there or drop a comment. Again, this is a rough translation from the medieval Florentine into modern mm, attempted conversational English without any worry about the poetics of which there are many worries. Here we go. Canto 30 lines 130 through Canto 31 line 6. I was fully occupied in listening to them when my master said to me, Keep right on staring, and I'm just a little bit away from having a tiff with you. When I sensed he spoke to me in anger, I turned back to him with such shame that it still gyrates through my memory. Like a guy who's had a dream about being hurt and, while dreaming, wishes he were only dreaming, longing for what is even if it were not, so it went with me, unable to utter a word. I wanted to beg for his pardon, even though all along I was doing the very thing I believed I wasn't doing. A greater crime would get washed off with less shame, my master said. Yours doesn't even stand at that level, so set down that burden that's making you so sad. But know full well that I'm right by your side, especially if by fortune you should get into a spot where people are having a squabble like this. The desire to overhear this sort of thing is a vulgar wish. One in the same tongue that had stung me, bringing the blush to one of my cheeks and the other, then supplied me with the cure. So I've heard that Achilles' spear, the one that came from his father, could first cause a bad wound, then the good gift of healing. So that's where we are, at the end of the 30th canto, bleeding on into the repercussions in the 31st canto of Inferno. We're here at the end, as I said, of the pits of fraud, and here Virgil gives Dante quite a tongue lashing. We want to talk about that tongue lashing. We want to talk about the progression in the passage, which is interesting of itself. We want to talk about this medieval vision of consciousness, like a guy who's dreaming and while dreaming, he wishes he were only dreaming. This is really amazingly modernist stuff. We want to talk about why that is and why perhaps it comes about because it is following on the footsteps of Master Adam. And finally, there is a 
a tough point in this passage about Achilles and his spear. And I want to kind of talk you through that tough interpretive point in the passage. So let's get going. We'll start with that first question. Why does Virgil give Dante such a tongue lashing? This passage at the end of Canto 30 is the most forthright and the most aggressive rebuke Dante ever gets from Virgil. Here, Virgil seems almost irritated. No, beyond irritated. I'm a little bit away from having a tiff with you. I mean, he is really hitting Dante where he lives. Why? What is the point of this rebuke? I'm going to give you a couple reasons, and these reasons may be a little contradictory with each other. You can choose amongst them and maybe even figure out some of your own. So let's start with the first reason, and this may be that if we go back to the previous episode of this podcast and we talk about the tensone with Forese Donati, which I told you is problematic in and of itself, the exchange of in insulting sonnets back and forth between Dante and this Donati figure, maybe Virgil's tongue lashing here is a way to finally put that tenzone in its place. Let me just say, that is the way most critics have read this tongue lashing. That is, that bit between Master Adam and Sinon, that exchange of insults, is here fully put down by Virgil and basically said, look, if you're going to pay attention to that kind of thing, then I'm not going to be a guide for you anymore. <laughs> I'm going to have a tiff with you. I, I, don't expect me to stick around for such kind of low stuff. I should tell you that, again, there are problems with that. And lately, of course, the question of whether those tensions are even really part of Dante's poetry has been raised quite effectively. Maybe that interpretation still holds, but maybe it doesn't. A second reason might be to get the pilgrim back into the plot. <laughs> if you remember, Dante has been missing. There is a way in which Virgil may be calling the center of the narrative back. In other words, if you keep watching The Damned, you're not going to be the protagonist of your own poem anymore. I realize that's a little meta-literary, but that may be what Virgil is doing here putting Dante back at the center of his own poem so that the pilgrim's journey is really what is the focus here, not just on the silliness and low comedy of the damned. Or here's the third reason. Because perhaps what just went on between Master Adam and Sinon is not in any stretch of the imagination the sort of poetry that Virgil would admire or even practice. This is about as far away from the Aeneid as you can imagine. And for comedy to have gotten this far away from the Aeneid, from its original progenitor, from its original model, to have gotten this far away, maybe there's a way in which Virgil is recentering the poem back toward a Virgilian epic without all of this low street fighting going on. And in fact, what happens from here forward is going to become rather epic in nature, especially in the 31st canto of Inferno. That could be a reason that Virgil inserts himself in such an aggressive way into the text. Dante is using him as a tool to call the poem back to its epic roots. Dante the poet appears in this very passage, 
When I sensed, the pilgrim says, he spoke to me in anger. I turned back to him with such shame that it still gyrates through my memory, in my translation. That still gyrates through my memory? There's the poet. We got a very quick glimpse of the poet inside this passage. Isn't it interesting that we have come out of a piece of very low comedy between Master Adam and Sinon? We have turned back to the epic master Virgil, and then the poet Dante steps forward. If we were in a proper literary seminar together, we would work that out on a smart board. We would. We'd put low comedy, epic Virgil, the poet Dante in that progression, and we'd see how that could spin up into more interpretation, because it is such an interesting turn. And once the poet steps into the narrative, the poet sets off on one of the most interesting similes in all of Inferno. The text says, like a guy who's had a dream about being hurt, and while dreaming, wishes he were only dreaming, longing for what is, even if it were not. (laughs) We got to just stop and look at that. That is an astounding medieval vision of a divided, self-conscious, self-contradictory self. You know, you and me, modern people. (laughs) It's an amazing glimpse into a medieval notion of the unconscious. Now listen, there is no Freud in the Middle Ages, but I do want to tell you that it has been a trope of medieval criticism for hundreds of years, for centuries, that there is no sense of self in the modern sense of what a self is in the Middle Ages. I would point to passages like this of a divided self that get Well, they're not modern, but they get very close to being modern. I mean, if I had to retranslate this and put it more colloquially, it would be something like, I'm having a dream about being hurt, but I wish I weren't having that dream, and I'm wishing that I weren't having that dream even while I am still having that dream. So I'm longing for what is, that is, I'm longing for it to be a dream, even if it were not a dream, even though I might think it's reality. That kind of wild back and forth, wishing inside of a dream that a dream be only a dream, that's about as modern as it gets. So it went with me, the passage goes on, unable to utter a word. This kind of divided consciousness has brought a silence onto the pilgrim. You'll note that this silence is very different from his staring at Master Adam and Sinon. There, he's, what am I saying, overhearing gossipy low comedy. Here, this kind of silence is brought on by a consciousness that is split down its middle even in the dream state, dreaming that he wished he was only dreaming when he knows that, in fact, he is only dreaming. And that brings the pilgrim to complete silence. This is the first time a silence is explained in this way, and it is an extraordinarily self-provocative and self-contradictory way to explain the pilgrim's silence. And it goes on. 
I wanted to beg for his, Virgil's, for Virgil's pardon, even though all along I was doing the very thing I believed I wasn't doing. So I'm standing here and I'm blushing, as we're told in the text, so dramatically that I am indeed already, by the very look on my face, begging for Virgil's pardon. And yet I'm believing I'm not doing it because I'm silent. <laughs> See how complicated this is? It is an extraordinarily gorgeous explication of a self-contradictory self. Like a guy who's had a dream about being hurt and while dreaming, wishes he were only dreaming, longing for what is, even if it were not. So it went with me, unable to utter a word. I wanted to beg for his pardon, even though all along I was doing the very thing I believed I wasn't doing. Wow, fascinating, unbelievable to have come out of this pit of the falsifiers. Let's just pull this thread as far as we can pull it. Come out of this pit of the falsifiers into a statement of a divided self that is authentic, that is non-falsified, that is the kind of self contradictory self that you and I inhabit in the modern age. Just think through the interpretive ramifications of having come through Capocchio, having come through the rabid souls, having come through the dropsied souls, having come through the fevered souls, having come through all of that and all of those falsifications and falsifiers that have gone on here, the twinning finally comes down into the self itself, and the self itself is twinned. It's Narcissus. It's wishing something that it were not, and yet it's not Narcissus because Narcissus sees Narcissus's own reflection in the pool, but this is not that. This is looking in the pool and seeing something else, seeing a contradiction of myself. So complicated, so fascinating, so wonderful. And then Virgil replies. He says, a greater crime would get washed off with less shame. Yours doesn't even stand at that level, so set down that burden that's making you so sad. Virgil here seems to accept the look of contrition without the words. But know full well, Virgil goes on, that I'm right by your side, especially if by fortune you should get into a spot where people are having a squabble like this. The desire to overhear this sort of thing is a vulgar wish. It is this passage most specifically that most commentators point to, particularly before the modern era, in which they want Virgil to be an allegory of reason. And he does here sound very much like an allegory of reason. He can understand without words, and furthermore, he can reign in behavior. That does really sound like a medieval understanding of what rationality or reason is. Not an enlightenment understanding, but a medieval understanding of what reason is. If there is any merit to the notion of Virgil as an allegory of reason, this is the passage you can really put your weight down on. Because Virgil is saying, I'm a safeguard, I'm a guardrail, I'm 
I'm, I'm the thing along the edge of the highway that won't let you fall off. I'm right here beside you. And if you ever get in a spot like this again, I can stop this behavior because, and then that last line, the last line of the 30th canto, the desire to overhear this sort of thing is a vulgar wish, which itself is a divided twinning line because you've got a desire to overhear and then a wish, desire, wish. See the twinning right there in the line, the duplication that exists inside that line itself. This whole pit has been so involved with twinning. I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but let me first talk about the progression that goes on inside the passage we're in. If you think about how this progresses, it goes like this. Virgil speaks, the pilgrim reacts, the poet appears, the poet gives us an example of his exceptional craft, and Virgil forgives him. That's how the passage progresses. Virgil interrupts the fight between Master Adam and Sinon. I mean, I guess we assume they're still fighting, or he has yanked the pilgrim away enough that the pilgrim doesn't really know whether they're still fighting. I mean, listen, that insult match could keep going on for all of eternity. Virgil has brought a halt to that, at least in our perception, inside the text. It may be still going on over there behind us, but we don't see it anymore. Instead, Virgil has called the pilgrim back to the journey. The pilgrim then turns around in shame, and the poet appears, and then we get this exceptional six-line simile about dreaming and wishing you were dreaming while you're dreaming and long Longing for what is. Think about how that worked out. An example of low comedy is then followed by an eruption of Dante the poet in the text, and then the poet gives us one of his most complicated similes. I think the poet is telling us unquestionably that while he can write low comedy like just happened between Master Adam and Sinon, at the same time, he is a very learned and very capable and very astute poet who can craft this complicated simile, particularly complicated in a medieval context, this complicated simile of a divided self, put it so succinctly, so beautifully, so just beyond the edge of rational thought itself, you can write this gorgeous poetry after all that low comedy, and then Virgil reappears and forgives the pilgrim. So the poet enters, the poet gives a simile, then we're back to Virgil speaking to the pilgrim. It's not as if Virgil has forgiven the poet. The poet has, in fact, exonerated himself. Virgil turns around and forgives the pilgrim because of the look on his face. Here begins the dangerous game. The poet has been playing this game from the beginning, but not quite this dangerously. Here's the game. I am the poet who went on this journey, and I am here to tell you about this journey. We can see that even in the opening of the canto, one of Inferno, in which the poet, of course, steps forward within the first few lines of the poem to say that the fear that the pilgrim felt in the dark wood is still felt by the poet now. 
Fair enough. That's the game. But now the game has changed. And it strikes me that this passage is a good example of that changed game. I am the great poet that went on the journey that this pilgrim went on to become the great poet that I am. And I think we can see that playing out in the structure of this passage. The pilgrim makes an error in paying attention to Master Adam and Sinon. Virgil corrects the pilgrim. That correction causes the poet to step forward. The poet still feels that correction gyrating around. The poet then gives us six lines of incredibly difficult, elliptical, and very crafted poetry about the divided self. Out of that comes Virgil giving forgiveness to the pilgrim. The poet's stepping out in this passage shows us that the poet has stepped beyond this moment of reprimand to become the great poet. Why is that a dangerous game? <laughs> you have to be able to pull it off. If you think you're a great poet, you got to show something for it. Now, Dante, of course, does, but it's still a dangerous game for any writer to play. A fascinating interplay of twinning between pilgrim and poet in a pit all about twinning. Which brings me right to that point about twinning. There is so much twinning going on here that it even leaps over into the 31st canto where we find out that Achilles and his father had the same sword and as the canto 31 opens, one in the same tongue that had stung me, bringing the blush to one of my cheeks and the other, see there's more twinning, then supplied me with the cure, and then Achilles and his father with the same spear, and then two different kinds of cuts from that spear, a bad wound and a gift of healing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. It's just twinning itself out into the 31st canto. I mean, this thing is dividing and becoming unbelievably complex. In fact, it starts out that way. It says at the front of the passage where we were at line 130 of canto 30, it says, I was so fully occupied in listening to them when my master said to me, keep on staring. And the word they're used for staring is mira from the verb mirare. It's mirroring. Hear the word in it? Hear mirror in it? Mirare. It's mirroring. In other words, Virgil says, keep right on being a mirror. Keep right on acting like a mirror to them. So there is a way that the pilgrim is getting sucked into the vortex of twinning a la Narcissus. Keep standing there acting like a mirror for Adam and Sinon, and then I'm going to really have a tiff with you. There is this vortex of Narcissus that is existing in this passage, and the passage is skirting right on the edge of narcissistic self-contradiction and divided self-consciousness and twinned self-consciousness. It just is getting so close to it. Keep on mirroring. So there's a threat. And yet at the same time, here's a different kind of mirroring that is seeing yourself as a reflection of not, in fact, what you're doing currently, dreaming that and wishing that you're not dreaming. <laughs> And yet at the same time, you are dreaming. So you are seeing yourself reflected, but then you're thinking that you're not or you're hoping that you're not. It's so complicated. It is skirting in the most 
intellectual fashion on an edge of narcissistic solipsism all the way out even down to two cheeks and two people owning the same spear. The last pit of fraud is about duplication. We end with this notion of Achilles, and this is a tough point. So let me tell you the whole problem here. Let me read you lines four through six of Canto 31 again, and then tell you why this is a tough point. So I've heard that Achilles' spear, the one that came from his father, could first cause a bad wound, then the good gift of healing. The story that Achilles' spear could wound and then heal was fairly common in Dante's day. In fact, it was the subject of much troubadour poetry written in Old Provencal. Dante clearly knows the troubadour tradition, clearly knows Old Provencal. Maybe I'm telling you too much, but ahead of us in comedy, there is a chunk that is written in Old Provencal. Dante is clearly aware of what happens in Provencal and clearly aware of Provencal poetry. And this notion that Achilles' spear could wound and then heal is pretty common in troubadour uh, stories, troubadour poetry. The myth is actually that one of Hercules' sons gets wounded by Achilles' spear. Um, He's going to die. He goes back to Achilles. Achilles chips a little of the rust off his spear, drops it into the wound, and the kid gets healed. That's the original story. The troubadours actually, over time, altered that story. And what they claimed was that essentially Achilles' spear, if it cut you once, it harmed you mortally. If it cut you a second time, it healed you. They changed that story from the rust off the spear to this notion that first cut, deadly, second cut, healing. And so if Achilles hit you by mistake, he could then wound you again, and that second wound would be a healing wound. But here's the trick for this entire bit. While Dante can know that from the old Provencal myths, he can't know that Achilles got his spear from his father. And that's the real trick in the passage, because that little detail that Achilles got his spear from his father, that only comes from Homer. And as we know, Dante had no access to Homer. How in the world does he know that this is here? Many commentators claim that this is all based on a misreading of Ovid, that there is a passage in Ovid that talks about this sword, and Dante has misread an adjective to mean Peleus, the father of Achilles, when in fact it's Pelion. That means it comes from a certain mountainous region or even from the mountain itself. And Dante has misread that bit in Ovid. The problem with that is Dante so rarely misreads passages. You really have to predicate a giant argument here to get to understand how Dante could know that Achilles' spear came from his father. You have to build an entire narrative structure here that the poet has misread Ovid in some way. Now listen, this idea starts getting dropped in the early 20th century, and then 
Every critic picks it up. Everybody now says it. But I want to call a halt to that every critic says it. It's not that I don't think that most Antistas are far more rigorous and far more informed than I. I just want to say that that story doesn't win on Occam's razor. In fact, it makes a more complicated assessment to try to make sense of this passage. Now, I don't have a better assessment than that. So please don't think that I'm going to come at you now with some better rationale. What I'm going to come at you with is that Dante knows things that we don't exactly know how he knows things. Maybe he knew enough of the Homeric story that he had picked up this detail elsewhere. Maybe he did misread Ovid. Maybe he saw this bit about Achilles got his spear from his father in some old Provençal poem that we no longer have access to. My whole point here is that we are a long way away from Dante's writing of comedy. There is so much dimness between us and him. Maybe once in a while, it's important to remember that dimness. While a story about misreading Ovid can make sense of how Dante would know that Achilles got his spear from his father, Nonetheless, it is a more complicated answer than perhaps the real answer, which is there is no real way to know how Dante came up with this detail. It could be misreading or it could be the dimness of history itself. In fact, that leads us out to what comes next, which is an extraordinarily dim and dark part of hell. But to get there in the 31st canto, this liminal space, this space in between the 8th and ninth circles of hell, you're going to have to subscribe and come back to this podcast. Read this podcast if you would and stick with me because we are about to enter yet another of the strange liminal spaces of comedy in several episodes ahead because we're going to look back at the 10th Malabolgia in the next episode and then back at the entire circle of fraud in the episode after that. And then we'll come to the liminal space. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.